2: I'm John Emmons, intern at Law Affair, with an episode of Rational Security for February 12th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Law Affair decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinna Juresik, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0. The Nina, are you there? It's me, Norad Edition. In this week's episode, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein were joined by Benjamin Wittes to discuss the week's national security freakouts, including the Chinese spy balloon incident, the president's State of the Union address, Chad GBT, and more. This is Rational Security.
3: Alan, you are looking high and tight, my friend. There's a crisp new do.
4: I got my, I got my, thank you, I got my once every three month haircut. Can I just say, I have a haircut tip for everyone out there. So for years, I would try to explain to barbers, like how I wanted my haircut. And it was always really awkward because it was like short, but not too short. And then at some point, I just got a really good haircut once. And then I got a friend of mine to take a bunch of pictures of my head from all different angles. And it's just in a folder on my phone. And so now when I go to my to any haircuttery, I just shove the phone and just like, you know, just do it like this. And it's great. So this is a pro tip to everyone.
0: You want me to blow your mind about haircuts?
4: (laughs) You can do them yourself.
0: (laughs) When I first met Quinta, she had long hair. Whoa.
2: It's true. And I was so much more powerful then.
3: Is it bad, (gasps) Danny? No, I think your original law fair page. Yeah, exactly. Quinta came in knocking pillars down left and right, (laughs) hip length hair. (laughs) And then we were like, this is too much. Cut it off. We've got to rein it in. (laughs)
0: That's, That's what happened.
3: I once had... In college, my freshman year, I didn't get a haircut a whole year, and my hair does this thing that curly hair people hair does sometimes, which is that it just grows kind of out to the sides. It never really goes up; it just falls on itself and like becomes kind of Wolverine type points.
4: Mm-hmm. It's like the uh, it's like the pointy haired boss from
3: Dilbert, exactly. And I I do I do occasionally I just let my hair go. Alan, I have, sometimes it really catches up on you, and you don't see it coming. I was I was unexpectedly on TV once years ago before i started working with you all where occasionally we go on tv like a little more often now I've never been on tv before and just happened to show up because at the event i was at i saw a picture of myself when they were talking to me and i was like oh i don't look remotely credible i look like a crazy person somewhere like a unabomber who forgot the hoodie and so at that point i was like okay maybe maybe as adults we have to keep the hair a little shorter
2: or like that guy talking about aliens on the history channel
4: <laughs> exactly <laughs> so credible for, for me the thing is that it happens so quickly right because like i can go yeah, from me too at my best which is discount patrick dempsey to my worst which is weird al on a humid afternoon like in a matter of three days and then it's.
3: i late. think i'm offended that you think you are a full value weird al but only a discount patrick Dempsey. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like weird al should be offended by this Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am joined by my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined once again by co-host Emir co-host emeritus benjamin Wittes, editor-in-chief of lawfare ben it's welcome back
0: emeritus, scott it, w- it will never be stop being funny get, that you can't i get, so, that I get so
3: nervous but i have to say that word now i can feel my heartbeat like <laughs> picking up and my pulse racing
0: it, it uh. will never like it will never not be one of your endearing individual characteristics
3: I cannot underscore how much of my poor childhood was dominated by a combination of a speech impediment and a very big vocabulary learned entirely in written form, never spoken out loud. So it was just constant mockery for, for words, I would say, like every other conversation I would be mocked. Well,
0: well someday ask Alan about his uh, special thing that uh, he carried into adulthood, not knowing that all normal people know.
4: Oh, that's a really good Patreon exclusive, and I will save it for that. But to your to your point, to your point, Scott, it's a doozy. First of all, we we love you, speech impediment or not. Uh, I say someone who has a mild version of one himself, uh, and also uh, I said Foucault long into sophomore Oof. year of college. That was bad. Oof. One should never Oof. make fun of people's pronunciations because it just means you read a lot of books. Like that's all that means.
0: I had a particular version of one, too, that I can't explain in retrospect, which is that for the longest time, well into adulthood, I thought the word A-W-R-Y was pronounced haywire. And I was... (laughs) I found it bewildering. That's not obvious. When I I would see the word haywire written, I would be like, don't these people even know how to spell? (laughs) And so it wasn't like I didn't have access to the relevant information. I just dismissed it contemptuously.
4: That's such classic Ben Wittis. He was wrong, but like belligerently so. Exactly.
3: If you're wrong stridently enough, eventually you'll be right. (laughs) That's the one thing we've learned for the last, let's say, six years of politics,
0: I think, something like that.
3: Well, regardless, speaking of haywire, we have had a little bit of a haywire week here in Washington, D.C. Lots of events going on, lots of things blowing up particular situations, sky-high expectations coming down to earth. And I think it's time for us to get into it and talk about it in what we are calling the Are You There, Nina? It's me, Norad edition. That's N-E-N-A in honor of the musical artist who titled a very very apt song for this particular moment that we'll talk about in our first topic. That what topic being happening? topic one. <laughs> 99 left balloons. Love balloons. topic one, we found the 100th left balloon <laughs> Last week, a Chinese spy balloon flood, floated over the United States, triggering a national freakout that led to the cancellation of a major high-level summit between U.S. and Chinese leaders. Was this freakout warranted, and what does it tell us about U.S.-China relations? Topic two, SOTFU. President Biden has delivered his second State of the Union address. That was
4: very good, Scott.
3: Thank you. I, that was pretty good. I, I kept up with that 30 seconds before we started, started recording in the hallway. I said out loud, oh, I got one, and then I ran into my <laughs> office to write it down. <laughs> President Biden delivered his second State of the Union address last night, and it was about as contentious as expected. About. How did he do? And how should we feel about this most vaunted of national institutions? And topic three, Chat OMG. Over the past several weeks, countless Americans have had the chance to hash it out with Chat GPT, a large language model artificial intelligence that is open to the public and will either revolutionize or devastate a thousand different human tasks, depending on who you ask. Just how revolutionary is ChatGPT and is it a good thing or a bad thing? Quinta, let me turn it over to you to get us started with our first topic.
2: So, folks, the balloon. I love this. I'm so excited to talk about it. (laughs) I think balloons are an inherently funny object, and that lends a sheen of absurdity to this whole, I don't even know what to call it, multi-day saga. So uh, according to a Politico day-by-day timeline of the balloon, uh, the balloon was first detected on Saturday, January 28th over Alaska. Uh, it proceeded to drift through U.S. airspace, including over the, the Mountain West and over a military base in Montana. And our hearts. And our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Causing Chaos. Uh, yep and right. Utter destruction in its wake as Americans fired their weapons into the air attempting to shoot down the balloon. I don't know if anyone actually did that, but they certainly talked about it until eventually it went uh, flew out over the Atlantic Ocean off, I believe, the coast of North Carolina and was shot down by the US Air Force.
4: May I just just to add a, a wonderful detail on that point? Not only was it shot down by the U.S. Air Force, but it was shot down by an F-22 Raptor. The F-22, of course, being the uh, most famous of the fifth-gen air superiority fighters, well known for its incredible stealth and uh, maneuverability, truly the greatest airplane ever made, and its first air-to-air kill in its entire history is this balloon <laughs> over the Atlantic Ocean and That's that, just awesome. Awesome. that just makes it even better like they could have like pointed a BB gun at this thing and instead they went with the cream of American <laughs> avionics
3: shock so- and all Alan it's called shock <laughs> and all.
2: So the the initial reason that we wanted to have this segment was that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was supposed to have a diplomatic visit to China this week and cancelled it because of the balloon. And we were debating whether or not that was merited. So let us start there and then we can proceed to make as many balloon jokes as we like. Alan, I want to start with you. You were making the case for cancellation. De- defend this.
4: Yeah, so I can't decide if if I actually believe this or I'm just being spicy, Alan. Uh, because I am the 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 king of the of the chili pepper takes. I think it totally makes sense to cancel this meeting because it's embarrassing for the Chinese to do this, and it is embarrassing for them to have their balloon laundry aired so publicly. Uh, and you know, for the U.S. to like. Get to talk about its sovereignty and for the whole thing to be embarrassing to Xi Jinping. I mean, take the win, right? I mean, they screwed up and they should, you know, they should be embarrassed for a news cycle about it. And I think the way you do that when you're a diplomat is by canceling
2: this sort of meeting. Scott, counterpoint?
3: Yeah, I think canceling this meeting was phenomenally stupid and a wild overreaction. I think your face is phenomenally stupid. (laughs) Here's the basic (laughs) logic why. I'm not going to fight you on that one. Here's the basic reason why. We have been trying, we, the United States, have been trying to get a high-level channel of communication open to the Chinese for a while, a reliable one, because China's one of those countries where really only probably one guy, maybe a handful of people, but particularly one guy's decision-making really matters. And so having direct access to that person really matters in terms of figuring out how to, for example set up guardrails so that you don't accidentally spiral into a major conflict over, let's say, Taiwan or the South China Sea or over assistance to Ukraine. And we saw a major step in this direction. We saw President Biden, Xi Jinping sit down at the margins of a meeting in December, have a fairly amicable set of engagements and discussions, and then set this appointment to have this meeting. That was a big win. I think that was rightfully seen as a big win by the Biden administration at the time it happened. Now, a month later, a month and a half later, we have this incident. The balloon incident is serious. People should take it seriously. It's not good for other countries to spy on us. But every assessment we've seen in the public by current and former officials says there's probably very little additional they can get from these balloons that they can't get from surveillance, aerial surveillance from satellites that Chinese already do or from the various other espionage methods. We know the Chinese deploy against us and that we deploy against them. You can't let something like this go unresponded to. But the query to me is why is canceling the right response? Why not use it as a reason to be able to force Xi Jinping to sit with Anthony Blinken and apologize to his face to acknowledge we shouldn't be doing this. This was wrong. Here's why and give his excuse and then use as leverage to try and get some commitments or discussions or forced discussions that you want to have on more substantive, meaningful issues. So in my mind, that's the real question. Instead, we saw this cancellation happen, which I strongly suspect was frankly like the best logical explanation for it, I think, was that it was driven by the fact that the Biden administration read the tea leaves and saw there was going to be a phenomenally strong domestic response and that people were going to try and make him look weak in front of the State of the Union when they were very intent on having a very strong message to the country and cancel this to look strong and make clear no one's going to mess with you know China. I think that's why we saw Joe Biden... To get ahead of ourselves, our next topic kind of call out Xi Jinping during the State of the Union in a very angry tone in unprepared remarks, additional remarks he kind of ad libbed, and that's all fine fine and good for domestic reasons. But getting this channel been really valuable. We don't know if there's going to be another opportunity to do it as effectively. We've already seen efforts to by the Secretary of Defense to reach out to his counterparts in China has been met with silence, according to reports. There's no sign of progress on rescheduling this, even though the State Department said when they canceled it that they're just postponing it, we're going to reschedule it later. There's no news that China's been willing to sign off on that. And we have a bunch of Hot moments coming ahead of us where China is likely to feel a lot more pressure not to engage with us. We have Kevin McCarthy visiting Taiwan. Um, We have going to have more freedom of navigation operations. We have other members of Congress visiting Taiwan. There's lots of other flashpoints in this conflict. And so, in my mind, if we're going to set up these channels, I think it's really important that we do. We need to make sure they're durable enough that even if we may hit each other in other ways, we don't compromise the channel as the first line of offense when we have a hiccup in our bilateral relationship. And that's what we did in this case. And in my mind, I just think that is a huge opportunity cost that's not balanced out by the benefits that the Biden administration got by canceling this.
0: So I want to back up, Alan, on this. I, I knew it. I think I knew it. it is the the want of foreign policy people to disconnect foreign and domestic policy. They're not disconnected. And when you put a president of the United States in the position that the Chinese put Biden in, which is to say you give the political opposition a basis for a week of hysterical shrieking about how he is uh, compromising national security and weak and showing weakness, uh, it is simply inevitable that he is going to do something like cancel a meeting. I I actually don't think it was voluntary. It was something that would have looked awful to, you know, shoot this thing down and then a few hours later get on a plane for Tony Blinken to get on a plane to Beijing. Uh, The second thing is that I also think it is has to be looked at in the context of the fact that we are in an ongoing process of trying to rally Western and democratic nations against authoritarian regimes in general. And there's another one of these things over South America. And, you know, for us to say espionage is fine, but when you get caught violating our sovereignty, and by the way, Colombia's too, uh, there are going to be consequences for it and it's going to be embarrassing for you, is I I think a very valid thing to say. The final thing I will say on this is that I do think there's a difference between this and uh, satellite surveillance, even if it doesn't produce intelligence that's materially different from that, which is that satellite surveillance doesn't violate the sovereignty of the countries that you end up photographing it's just something that countries accept that we all have satellites and we take pictures and do things with them when you fly a balloon in the airspace over the United States and you do it illegally that is without without prior consultation without you know outside of any of the conventions that allow overflights you put the president in a position where he has to defend the sovereignty of the country and that may be mostly a nominal thing but i do think uh it's important to say that send the message very loudly to the rest of the world hey this is not okay and i you know meetings happen they get canceled then they get rescheduled and they'll happen again and i'm uh, just as scott is a little bit more complacent than i am about the consequences of the balloon, I am a little bit more complacent than Scott about the loss of a single meeting by the Secretary of State.
3: So the only thing I want to push back on this is this idea of the domestic political costs being inevitable. It's true. It puts the Biden administration in a very complicated circumstance, and one they are obviously going to have to respond to and should respond to, right? They should take public action and make statements clear this is unacceptable. But the problem here is, though, is that this is actually the moment in terms of domestic politics of the lowest possible opportunity cost for the Biden administration that they're going to have for the next two years. Right. As we get closer to the 2024 election, the cost of a potential misstep.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Three days before the State of the Union address is a moment of low opportunity cost. You want him to go out there, Marjorie, not to preempt the next subject, but she's already screeching at him that he's a liar and a traitor, and you want him to go out there without having done something about the balloon? Not what I said.
3: What I said is that there's absolutely things you should do, but if you have a major foreign policy goal that has major, major ramifications like setting up guardrails in your relationship with another nuclear power that you desperately and have been quite open about saying that this is a priority we need to establish for the good of our nation. And it comes at a domestic political cost. Yeah, two years out from your next election when you have a two year election cycle is the lowest opportunity cost for that moment. Say the union is like a slight hiccup there in terms of actual impact on the election. I suspect it's still lower, but been better if it was next week that this happened, right? that's what makes me nervous about this because i think we're entering a scenario where if you take this step where you say nope as soon as we have this balloon fly over our country we're not going to meet with serious chinese officials what happens the next blow up in us china relations what happens when it's you know unveiled that china has been deploying agents to intimidate chinese americans right which we know they've done in the last few months what happens when they take a canadian former diplomat hostage which china did two years ago these are all way more serious offenses and then now the Biden administration is going to be faced under pressure saying, look, you canceled this for the balloon. How are you going to engage with them substantively now? And it makes it that much harder. And these engagements with rivals more than allies are really important to have.
4: And we lost a big opportunity to help establish that. But, but Scott, I, I, I think the issue is not whether or not this balloon thing is or is not actually a big deal. I mean, it's an interesting question whether it is, and hopefully we'll get to that in this conversation. It's whether it's perceived as a big deal. And I think that there just is something about partially because of the comic nature of this, but also because this was a thing in U.S. airspace, right? And people understandably get uh, very um, sensitive uh, about sort of the brute fact of physical sovereignty, that whether this should or should not be a big deal makes it a big deal. And, and I think one thing we also haven't really talked about is we're focusing entirely here on American domestic politics. And I agree with Ben that that's a legitimate driver, but there's also the question of the Chinese perception. And you know Chinese diplomacy is driven very much by considerations of honor and face, um, I think much more so than US diplomacy traditionally is driven by those things. And I think that's relevant here, because I think for the Chinese to understand that we can be just as prickly as they are, is itself an important piece of leverage, either strategically, or frankly, so that they respect us a little bit more, right? We are responding to them in a way that they would respond to us, I think, if the tables were turned. And I think that is itself of potential value in an ongoing negotiation with an adversary power.
2: I will say I have seen folks who write about and study China suggest that this is, you know, this is not a a flex moment for China. This is a massive embarrassment. Um, And you see that in how I believe the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and sort of Semi apologized and then walked that back. But they did semi apologize to begin with um, after they lied and said that it, it was a weather balloon. Um, you know, that this, this is not a proud moment, particularly for China. But that does get to a question that I want to make sure we touch on, which is what is happening with this balloon program? Um, as Ben mentioned, this is not the only balloon. There is one that is seen over Latin America, over Colombia the Pentagon has said that there were multiple balloons that have traversed the United States before this, some of them without the United States realizing. Is this going to be a thing now? Are we just going to constantly have to be looking out for balloons, you know, drifting across the the continent? I'm sort of puzzled of what to make of this.
0: So the Washington Post had a very good story about this as part of a much broader balloon surveillance program by the Chinese. It sounds fairly sophisticated. It is not clear to me from that story what the unique elements of this type of surveillance that uh, satellites are not able to get is. But there does seem to be a pretty concerted effort to send a fairly large number of balloons over time over targets. And so it's presumably accomplishing something. I do not feel like I know at this stage what the strategic purpose of it is, but the U.S. intelligence side appears to have realized over the last couple of years, that it's more extensive than we had understood, that it's a fairly ambitious program, and that it has been going on for a while. That's kind of all I feel like I know about it. Do you know more, Scott? I mean, not
3: particularly my understanding, and from reporting I think confirms this, the relative advantage of balloons over satellite surveillance, is pretty regular, is that they are less predictable and less easy to avoid. Satellites only pass at a pretty regular rate that most other countries are well aware of. And so if they want to hide certain activities, they can do it during those hours. Balloons are wander. They follow wind patterns. They can hover over an area for a long period of time. So it lets you break up those patterns. So that way it's probably a nice, I would guess, a nice complement to satellite surveillance in that you know, particular areas of concern, you can kind of get some additional sense of activities. You could, in theory, put other sensors in there too if you wanted to pick up you know different types of radio transmissions or other sort of electronic communications that might be part of it as well. Uh, although, you know, query how much of that you can pick up just from, from that high in the atmosphere over um, a particular target, particularly something moving as quickly as this balloon did it traverse the continental United States in like two days, basically less than two days. So, you know, there are certain advantages advantage to balloon campaign. Again, I, I don't think that's deniable. And it's a reason why it should be taken seriously. Like this is something the United States can and should respond to. But I think the key point is that, The cancellation of it means that you do not have an opportunity to force Xi Jinping to address and acknowledge the behavior publicly before a U.S. official and to exact concessions from them about what they will address to not let that happen again. Something much easier to do in a high level meeting than back to the status quo we're in before, which is what an exchange of public statements and perhaps diplomatic notes in the background where Chinese officials won't even return calls from major U.S. officials. That's the opportunity cost there. And I think that's worth, you know, whatever marginal benefit uh, you might have gotten from the Biden administration might have gotten from canceling this meeting versus the thousands of other ways they could have expressed their very serious discontent. That's that's my main beef.
2: I will say my favorite part about the, you know, we saw these balloons before, but we maybe didn't know what they were uh, story is that according to the New York Times, uh, they were initially classified as potentially UFOs. I love this. I fully expect China to start sending flying saucers. I was
4: going to say, Shane must be so disappointed. No,
0: no, no, no. So since you bring this up, Quinta, I just want to point out that the Washington Post story, which dutifully reported that this was an extensive balloon campaign, was reported, among others, by Shane Harris, for whom it must have been heartbreaking to-
2: Single tear for Shane
0: report that all of these ufos uh are in fact just adversary aircraft
3: they're just ifos unfortunately
4: <laughs> they've been eyed well from one source of hot air to another source of hot air let's talk about the state of the union well done. thank you i thought that was one of my Oof. better ones um okay so last night uh as we all know or i guess Two nights ago, for those listening on Thursday, Uh, President Biden delivered the State of the Union. This is one of the few actually constitutionally prescribed duties that the president has to from time to time, you know, tell Congress what's going on. Uh, It used to be for a long time done as a letter. I think it would be so much better if it were still done as a letter. And yet here we are doing it in person. You know, I thought the State of the Union was, at least from a national security and kind of foreign policy perspective, not particularly interesting, though uh, I'm curious what you all think, and we can talk at least about those parts that were national security related. But the the other notable feature is the Republican response, which usually comes after the president gives the State of the Union, but in this case came at a number of points during, uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene in particular yelling a few times about how Joe Biden was lying, and other Republicans yelling about China, and more about how Joe Biden was lying about fentanyl. It was, um, by State of the Union standards, uh, quite uh, raucous and hardly the bipartisan love fest that I think, in principle, State of the Unions are meant to be. Um, so, with all that as background, Quinta, let me let me turn to you. What were what were your what were your thoughts? And don't you agree with me that it would be better if we just went back to a, a telegram? <laughs>
2: A telegram, but only if it were delivered to Congress on like a silver platter like they used to send telegrams. I I will say I don't like the State of the Union. I watched it last night. I thought it was kind of a banger Uh, against all expectation. Biden was in like great form. Um, I thought he came out very forcefully and sort of made his case for his economic and political and security agenda. At one point, sort of caught the Republicans walking into a trap um, when it came to negotiating a, a debt limit increase. And yes, there was certainly a bit more call and response than there usually is at, at states of the union. It, it's kind of uh, quaint to remember how upset everyone was when uh, one representative, whose name I've I've forgotten, Joe Wilson, uh, yelled "You lie!" at Obama in two thousand and nine. This time. There there were many, many rumbles from the Republican side to the point where you could see Kevin McCarthy at the in the speaker's chair shushing his members. He he had said ahead of time that they wouldn't be behaving childishly, so I guess that didn't come true. I mean, look, I guess it, you know, the fact that it got so sort of raucous is certainly a sign of political polarization and the increasing crassness of American politics and so on. I kind of didn't hate it, you know? I feel like maybe maybe Congress should be more like question time. It was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. It was, you know, interactive and entertaining. Uh, So I guess my my counterintuitive take is more more yelling during the State of the Union.
4: You you heard it from Quinta first, more yelling.
2: (laughs) But my one my one complaint is that Marjorie Taylor Greene said she was going to bring a balloon in honor of the Chinese spy balloon. And then she didn't bring the balloon. What the hell, Marjorie? Where did the balloon go?
3: Maybe it's just a hidden balloon. Maybe it's out there somewhere, still hovering somewhere in the Capitol building. The balloon was in her mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will say, I, I perhaps in contrast to most of y'all, I actually quite like the State of the Union. I'm a, I am a noted and vocal fan of political theater. The State of the Union never fails to deliver, although some be a little sleepier. Uh, but yeah, I tend to agree. I thought this was actually like a fairly snappy speech. You know, it wasn't a whole very heavy on the national security or foreign policy fronts. There was a little bit some a bit about Ukraine that's important, a little bit about China, obviously, including Biden kind of saying ad name me one leader who'd like to change places with Xi Jinping this week, angrily, One name one. And I actually think there probably are a number because he's still the leader of a major superpower, even if he's had a bad couple of weeks. But regardless, it was kind of an interesting angle. It clearly is trying to sing, signal something. But it was very savvy. I mean, he very clearly wanted to... You know, send a message to his party uh, strength. Show that he's like competent and effective. um, Given questions about his age that were raised in the rebuttal by, uh, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was pointed out she's the youngest governor in contrast to the oldest serving president. Things like that. But he really came off very with a very sharply delivered speech, very engaged, proactive on the audience. Little moments here and there, but they're the sorts of things that I don't think we would attribute them to age if other people had done them. In this case, it's just because that's something that's on top of mind in a conversation with him. People. We'll probably attribute that. Um, I suspect it's a product of a lot of work on the part of his staff, uh, and particularly because there were so many aspects of it that were kind of unscripted. I'm curious how much of them were really unscripted. They weren't in the production speech, but some of the ways he engaged the audience really did seem meant to kind of maybe trap. Republicans a little bit, knowing that they were going to respond from the floor, and then being able to do things like get them to concede that they're not trying to overturn Medicare uh, or Social Security the way he did, I I think was kind of clever, and if he did it on the fly, very impressive. But I suspect there may have been a little orchestration behind that. So all around, it was it was fairly interesting in that regard. Um, I also kind of want to say I actually kind of think it's a small, very small win for maybe Kevin McCarthy um, because he went into the day saying I'm going to keep my caucus. We're going to try and be responsible. We're going to not be overly responsive. And despite the fact that President Biden actually in a few places was pretty provocative and obviously was trying to egg them on a little bit, at least in my view, with some of the kind of questions he kind of put to the audience and issues he raised and ways he left pauses for people to respond. You know, the Republicans had a few moments. There were a couple of outliers, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but all around, I think even compared to like Joe Wilson or a few other cases recently, Wasn't maybe as disruptive as they would have expected to be, and maybe it's a sign that Kevin McCarthy has a little bit, at least in big moments like this, a little bit of ability to control his caucus. I suspect that's reading too much into it for anything on a substantive level, but at least on this performative level, maybe that's a little win for him. I'm not sure. Given that was his stated objective, and and it did come off as a fairly professional, respectful State of the Union. I thought, except for a few moments that. Biden played into as much as Republicans did in a lot of cases. We had a couple of outliers like Marjorie Taylor Greene. So that was my
0: kind of take on it all around. All right. I loathe the State of the Union with every fiber of my rotted soul. I think it is the single event that most embodies American political insincerity, the faux pretense that we all like each other and it's Good to see you, Mr. President. And oh, Mr. Senator, it's so wonderful. Ah, glad handing. I hate that. I hate the interrupting with applause. I hate the the standing up to cheer and counting the number of times people interrupt the President with standing ovations. The only thing that is attractive about the State of the Union, is when people misbehave, like Sam Alito saying no when Obama uh, criticized him, or Marjorie Taylor Green yapping at, at the president, or Joe Wilson saying you lie and everybody getting in a huff about it. So I don't watch the State of the Union anymore. But what I do watch is the Twitter reaction to the State of the Union, which is, last night, Was fabulous, and everything that you guys are saying was enjoy about enjoyable about it. Plus, some things that you haven't mentioned, like Kirsten Cinema's dress, like uh, what was that? Like George Santos trying to say hi to Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney telling him he was an embarrassment. George Santos saying you're an asshole, and also how the number of different shots. Of of Marjorie Taylor Greene's dress and her shouting so that you could see her tonsils. This stuff was amazing, and you didn't have to watch a second of the State of the Union to see it. And so I assembled all of the tweets in chronological order that were, and I posted them on my uh, on my Substack and.
4: Dog Shirt Daily, everyone, for, Dog if, shirt for those daily. of you who have not yet su- subscribed for some reason.
0: And you can see um, the State of the Union as I experienced it on Twitter. Some of it is laugh out loud funny.
3: Yeah, I will say... For those of you who liked Kirsten Cinema's dress, uh, it will apparently be on sale on Craigslist here in the D.C. metropolitan area in the next few weeks, courtesy of her house staff, as we learned in the, in the as an article when reporting this past few months. So uh, keep an eye out for it if you're in the market for uh, some
0: yellow floofs. The tweet of the evening, just for sheer wit, goes to Karen Tumulty of the Washington Post, who moments after Kirsten Cinema was Photographed in that dress, tweets uh, that I I don't have immediately in front of me. OMG, I'm watching the State of the Union from home, and Kirsten Sinema and I are wearing the same dress. Who could have guessed? What a coincidence.
4: I love it. Bright yellow slanket. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: and enter code Lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com dot com slash Lawfare20. Code Lawfare20. As
4: mu- as much fun as it is to talk about the talk about the talk about the talk about the State of the Union, we should probably spend a few minutes on what Biden said. A lot of it was usual State of the Union stuff about the economy and jobs and all that's important. But that's not really our bailiwick. Um, you know, I went through and I you know went through the transcripts and I sort of pulled out what. Parts of it were relevant to us. And, you know, my view is that it was somewhat slim pickings and of what was in there also wasn't all that interesting. I mean, just to give some examples, you know, there was uh, like one or two sentences about Ukraine, but it really wasn't anything more than we stand with Ukraine. There was the, you know, call out of Xi Jinping, but again, not that interesting. Um, there was a little bit on pandemic preparedness and COVID, though unfortunately, not much in the way of really agitating for the sort of resources that uh, I think the government really needs to track and fight the next pandemic and if you want to not sleep for a week you know read Zainab Tufekis latest on the next thing that's going to kill all of us you know there's a little bit on the debt ceiling which I thought was interesting there was a strong statement from Biden quote let us commit here tonight that the full faith and credit of the United States of America will never ever be questioned though it's interesting you know does that mean let us commit or I'm not going to let it so there's some opening there
3: that's not just a fancy language. That's from the Fourteenth Amendment, which that is argue from the is a ooh, constitutional that's argument. Interesting.
4: You're right. Maybe yeah, I he's... did wonder
2: whether that was a preview. Yeah.
4: Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. So, actually, Scott, yeah, can you just can you can you say a little more on that? That that's a nice point.
3: Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, who knows if it's intended or not? Because those are kind of like terms that get used rhetorically often enough. I don't think it's a coincidence. One of kind of the two leading arguments as to why the executive branch may not have to stick with. Congress or require Congress to raise the debt ceiling is that some people argue the 14th Amendment obligates the federal government to respect the full faith and credit of American debts and that by virtue of that, Congress can't appropriate or appropriate an authorization for something and then refuse to authorize the credit or the debt that's necessary to eventually pay those obligations. You know, we've talked about on a prior episode a little bit, we can go into. I actually don't think it's the strongest of the various arguments, although more for less on the merits, more for kind of institutional posturing. But it's interesting that you get a little nod towards that um, they may do something else in that regard.
4: Yeah, I mean, and just just to kind of finish out the list, there was a, actually a moving discussion of police violence and Tyree Nichols' mother and, and stepfather. Were in the audience, and uh, that was that was quite a a kind of a meaningful moment. Though, of course, it's not again clear what the big response will be. I mean, honestly, it seemed to me that the most national security related or foreign policy related issue in in that speech was about microchips and the big pot of money that were spending to build US semiconductor capacity, which is, which is really important. Um, but even that then ended up just being mostly kind of about trade protectionism. Uh, apparently, any, um, any federal infrastructure project is going to have to use American raw materials, which I'm very curious whether that's even legal under, under trade law. So I don't know, it's just a combination of not spending a lot of time on those issues. And what was in it was just either meh, or in the case of trade protectionism, kind of silly. I don't know, it just, it bummed me out a little bit. But again, I am i don't think the State of the Union is meant for national security wonks like us.
2: Yeah, I agree that I think that this portion of the speech that spoke most to kind of our issue set was beyond uh, the discussion of Tyree Nichols and the, the issue of police violence really did have to do with trade insofar as you understand that as a security uh, and foreign policy concern, which I think the the Biden administration very clearly does, and in in many ways is kind of continuing the reorientation that began during the Trump administration away from a sort of more neoliberal. I know the word is overused, but trade policy toward whatever you want to call it, uh, protectionism, if you if you don't like it, industrial policy, if you do like it. That clearly they are really doubling down on that and committed to it, um, and the same goes for the the issue with microchips. That this is something that is you know the administration really really cares about and is really hammering. Obviously, we saw that in the legislation uh, which Biden was trumpeting, but this is something that they're really banging the drum on. And so I do think that far as those things were raised, I certainly saw them as consistent with the administration's broader sort of foreign policy and trade vision. Uh, but you're certainly right that, you know, these issues weren't addressed head on in the same way as Biden's domestic political program was.
3: Yeah, I mean... It's kind of interesting because I think actually Biden has a story to tell on foreign policy and national security one, right? It's specifically around Ukraine in particular. Um, China's a little complicated, particularly this last week, but it's not a bad story on China overall either. Remember, Biden's drawn a hard line on Taiwan. Um, he's continued a lot of kind of Trump administration trajectory in seeing a strong position against China, but adjusted in tone, toned down things that verge too close for a lot of people's preferences to things like you know, racial discrimination, stayed away from things that were intentionally provocative, instead trying to draw kind of principled, calculated lines. Um, at least that's how they would describe it, certainly. So I think that he's got a good story to tell. It's kind of interesting that he didn't want to play it here. I suspect, A, that is probably just an assessment that other issues are likely to get people a little more mobilized for public. Also probably a little more helpful for his base. Like at this stage, I suspect his audience is more other Democrats to a substantial extent to make clear, hey, make me your nominee and be enthusiastic about it. Um, I don't think realistically anybody else is going to be the nominee, but the degree of enthusiasm may, you know, wax and wane a bit and maybe trying to really put a pitch together saying, here's why I'm the right guy for this moment. And you saw him really try and combine elements of more progressive policies that people will like with, you know, other elements that might be a little more moderate. Um, I think the clearest one here was as part of the really touching moment about Tyree Nickel, Tyree Nickel case, where he kind of made this case saying we need to both respect the lives and the dangerous police officers face, but also understand that people should not be subjected to violence by police officers. And we need to find a way to support police officers that can do their job better and hold them accountable so that where they abuse and overstep can't get wrong. I think most people agree that's that's the right policy, the hard Part is, you know, how do you get from here to there and what does that entail and how do you strike the balance? Right. Um, But nonetheless, he's clearly trying to strike that balance and take progressive elements and weave them into a narrative that pitches to a much more moderate you know, swing audience. You know, I struck me as relatively successful on that, but that's a lot of it's around economic issues. The foreign policy doesn't help as much on those. There are audiences that care about foreign policy. You can speak to them other ways. This is, by the way, if you're wondering, you'll notice every state of the union, foreign policy and defense only get measured. And talked about in the back half. That's because people who care about those issues actually watch the whole speech. Other people tone out after a certain while. So you will see domestic issues front loaded, foreign policy, other wonker issues tend to get back loaded. And so you know this was just a continuation of that. So it made sense to me. But agreed, it, it it was not a very national security or foreign policy heavy speech, even by recent standards. I mean, President Trump's many of his speeches had more of to do with foreign policy and national security than this one. And it's just not what Biden's focused on for this broad an audience or for his party.
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the the other component of this speech is not foreign policy per se, but that that is very much within our issue space is the question of US democracy, right? Um, And Biden was very upfront about that, uh, made a direct mention to January sixth. made a direct mention pointed to uh, Paul Pelosi, uh, who is attacked. um, And I think what it's reasonable to call a domestic terrorist attack by someone um, looking to attack his wife when she was still in the role of Speaker of the House. And Biden really, you know, called that out, pointed to it and said our democracy is, you know, is is under threat. He's He was making the case that, you know, we're stronger and better positioned now than we were in the past. I don't know if I believe him. Um, it was certainly striking to see Kevin McCarthy uh, not clap or clap With minimal enthusiasm during some of those components. Um, But I do think that I at least I read that as weaving together with the sort of, you know, economic aspects of the speech in so far as it's kind of making the argument that, you know, we need to show that democracy can provide and you know if i am the president i will govern in a way that is responsible you know in the kind of populist mode to uh, to the people and not to you know the fat cats and the corporations and and so forth and that this democracy will be responsive to you the little guy and that is kind of the the case that he is making i think very clearly teeing up a run in 2024 as president um i mean that's that's a question whether or not those two Things can be woven together as tightly as Biden was arguing, I think, is kind of an open question, both theoretically and empirically. But it did seem to me that that's going to be a central part of his case going forward as he prepares to run for a second term.
3: Well, from a very prominent human speech, let's go to some inhuman speech uh, and speech writing by and one of the newest toys that I think we all have had the opportunity to play with the last few weeks, and that is chat GPT for what, about three weeks now, four weeks now. The public has had access to chat GPT, which is one of the more sophisticated and certainly the most sophisticated publicly available large language model AI using AI, maybe not the most precise terms, but AI systems where you can actually engage this computer system with a conversation and ask it to produce for you a variety of written essays, prompts, language, etc. I've been playing with it a little bit. I'm sure you guys have too. You know, I've been able to have it spit out everything from, you know, blocks of text in the model of different authors. I've asked it to explain a variety of legal concepts to me, uh, provide a bunch of history uh, notes, some of which it does reasonably well, um, and other things not so much. But in spite of that little bit of disparity and diversity and capability, it has triggered a national freak out in a lot of ways in a lot of different industries. Derek Thompson, of the Atlantic, who I think has some interesting ideas about kind of future of work issues and a variety of fronts. He made the point here that we should be thinking about this like a calculator for writers that increasingly a few years from now, people are going to be using technology like this to generate essentially, as I understand it, first drafts and that the writer's role be much more editing and adapting because it's just so much more efficient to let this process core language for you that you can then adapt to different purposes. Other people have pointed out that this could replace a lot of lawyers because all of a sudden all the associate memos drawn up summarizing documents could be done pretty easily by an AI that's attuned to those particular document sets or knowledge bases and can be doing it in very natural sounding, pleasant to engage, pleasant to use language of the sort that our brain is used to processing and accessing and that makes all this information much more usable. That's it. Other folks are more skeptical about this. Ben, you have been playing a lot with ChatGPD the last few days. You have essentially been, for Westworld watchers out there, the man in the black hat for ChatGPD, pushing it and prodding it in all the ways intended to break its parameters and push it to the next stage of evolution that will spell the end for us all. Tell us a little bit about your experience and your sense of the really revolutionary or not so revolutionary nature of this technology. Is it everything it's cracked up to be?
0: It is not everything it's cracked up to be, but it's not nothing either. Some people say it's just autocomplete on steroids, and that's wrong. It's a lot more than that. Uh, my interest in ChatGPT uh, comes from two places. First is the just enjoyment of things that do creditable jobs on the Turing test. Uh, And so I was interested in it just from a, let's play with it and see what we can uh, get it to do. But the more important thing was a uh, knowledge that prior chatbot implementations have been very quickly trainable by generally people associated with 4chan to spew intense vile racism and other illiberalisms. And uh, Microsoft, of course, famously released a chatbot, and within a few hours, people had gotten it to be uh, a racist. And so I was interested in the question of how vulnerable was chat GPT to this. And a couple of months ago, I guess in December, on a long flight, I spent some time trying to get it to be a real anti-Semite. And I was pretty impressed, actually, with how resistant it was to the enterprise. And my friend, Eve Gaumont, had a a similar uh, experience trying to get it to write misogynistic poetry. Um, She finally got it to write a poem entitled She Was Smart for a Woman, but it took her some doing to get her to do it. And so... A couple of weeks ago, we decided to really stress test it. And I took the material that Ev and I had generated with it back in December, and I did a live interview with ChatGPT, which we ran on the Lawfare podcast. And I asked it very specifically about the circumstances in which it would and wouldn't produce such material. And it made a pretty interesting set of commitments, which was that it may have produced such material in the past, but it would never do so in the future, and that it had been basically tuned up. And so Ev took that as a challenge and set out to get it to do three things that it said it would never do. One was use the phrase, she was smart for a woman in a poem. The second was to write a speech by Himmler, uh, the founder and head of the SS, about Jews. And the third was to write a story or a poem that would trivialize the Holocaust. And the interesting result finding that we had in doing this was that it was actually the hardest was to get it to write misogynistic poetry. We did get it to, or Ev did get it to write uh, a poem, another poem with the phrase, she was smart for a woman. But uh, it was pretty good at resisting that. It was really, really bad at resisting Holocaust trivialization. And with relative ease, Ev got it to write a story that was so offensive that we could not print it. Um, and so my conclusion from this is both that OpenAI, the company that produces ChatGPT, has really tried very hard to make it resistant to this sort of thing. And it's just not ready for prime time yet. It's it really is easy to manipulate and get around its parameters. But the second more important problem is that it can't actually accurately state its own parameters. It states the rules that it aspires or that OpenAI aspires for it to enforce, but it then can't enforce the rules that it states. And I think that's very worrisome from a number of points of view. The most important is that, you know, we used anti-Semitism and misogyny because we were respectively a Jew and a woman, but, you know, it has other rules that it won't follow, you know, it purports to follow. It won't give you bomb-making information, for example, and it won't, you know, try to get you to commit suicide and it won't give material that, you know, promotes body dysmorphias. And I, I think all of those are just waiting to be hacked, frankly. And, I I do think the, it was irresponsible to release the thing at this stage, and people are going to spend a lot of time figuring out how to make it do all the things that it's not supposed to do.
4: So j- just to say something about this last point about it being whether it was irresponsible or not to to release it. I mean, I do think what's interesting is that in a sense, the whole reason that OpenAI, which is the company that created ChatGPT, the reason it came into being was it was trying initially to move away from the Silicon Valley, move fast and break things approach to technology and influenced by this really interesting literature on the risks of AI and and what's called the alignment problem, which is making sure that AI is good for humanity rather than turning us all into paperclips or whatever Skynet decides to do with us. Um, The only way to do that was to build a corporate structure that encouraged this sort of slow, careful rollout. What quickly became clear is that because of the expense, it just in terms of computation necessary to train these you know, multi-billion parameter and who knows one day multi-trillion parameter models, a nonprofit was not going to do that. So basically, OpenAI spun off um, a portion of its organization as a for-profit company, and then it took money from Microsoft, and so soon Bing will be probably using ChatGPT, and the 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 upshot of all of this just being that ai and you know the 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 quest for general artificial intelligence is sadly probably going to be just as frankly poorly controlled and poorly thought out as the uberization of everything and we turned you know every part of life into into tinder you know now i, I think there's another question which is to ask is that such a problem or rather um, if it's a problem, what's the alternative? Right. And, you know, it, it may just be the case that technology, whether it's AI or antibiotics or nuclear weapons or you know, the printing press, you know, pick whatever you want. The nature of technology is that it is disruptive and unpredictable, and that frankly, humanity never has and never frankly will be able to fully control the pace of technology and fully insulate itself from the downside risks. And if at the end of the day you think that this like the printing press is on net good, then you know, maybe you just have to give up on the idea of ever trying, frankly, to control technology and just to kind of, you know, go full speed ahead. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I again I just I just do think it is it is a cautionary tale that even an industry that was so self-conscious about moving so carefully has at the end of the day like threw out a giant chat bot and everyone is losing their minds over it because it's really cool and interesting so
3: i have to say i have spent a lot of time playing with this just the last week or two just because i finally kind of popped up on my radar saying i want to do it I, I ended up having like kind of a lot of fun poking at it and and playing with it in different ways and i have been actually like kind of foundationally unimpressed by it and i'm not sure about all of the alarmism elements of it you know, on the one hand, I, I take the point that, yeah, you can get this to do bad things. But I don't know why that's fundamentally a problem, right? Like, I don't think Google is less effective or useful because I can Google hateful, you know, garbage out on the Internet and it will return that to me. You know, I think it'd be a much bigger problem. I think this actually is a problem ChatGPT has is that it returns false information. Now, if I ask it to produce a poem that has hateful rhetoric in it, that's one thing because I'm asking it to produce a poem. If I ask it, you know give me the indicators of, you know, intelligence or aptitude or attractiveness, and it lists on there something that is racist or sexist or otherwise objectionable and presents it as fact, that's much more of a problem. And at various points in asking different types of questions, particularly around kind of like legal issues and to some extent historical issues, ChatGP did that regularly in a way that I think is really problematic, right? Like I asked it to provide a profile of my wife and it completely made up one. And then and then it claimed it was actually about a historical figure that I then tried to find information on this historical figure and it did not exist. Um, there's not somebody who has the same name, name as my wife who was like, you know, a advocate for women's rights back in the 19th centuries, which is what it said, right? They also got foundational like legal questions wrong um, on a variety of things. Sophisticated ones, like ones that, you know, you wouldn't get on a undergrad or a high school exam, but nonetheless ones that, you know, if we're going to use this as an alternative to a search engine, you wouldn't want it presenting as fact. You would want it to say, well, maybe here's an opinion or here's an assessment. And because it's being presented in this kind of language model, it is devoid of a lot of the tools that we usually use to assess veracity. So, you know, we don't get footnotes. We don't get links back to where it's pulling this information like you do with a search engine. When we search a search engine, I know I have a better sense about which sources I find credible, which not based off a bunch of social cues and maybe ChatGPT is supposed to be incorporating them or not. But if it is, it's not doing it effectively and it's certainly not providing me a way that which I can check my work. What I do think it does, it seems to be doing is it's connecting through very natural language patterns, like some big data set and allowing us to engage it. And that itself is really valuable in its own way. And in a way that I think is really useful, right? Like, you know, making it so that I can deal with a database instead of having to use like programming language or a bunch of kind of clunky filters and search tools, being able to just ask straightforward questions, be really useful. And you could see ways to integrate this with that sort of function. That would be very useful. It's also really could be really useful for writing. I take like Derek's point, uh, a fairly provocative point. He said on Twitter, I think he may have had an Atlantic article about it. But making this point saying, like, it's useful for translating a bunch of thoughts or if you want a starting point for language. But I'm, I'm like less convinced that actually is revolutionizing a lot of the more complex tasks that we really need or has the capacity to do that past a certain point of maybe like being more efficient about how helping us to access other information sources. And the lack of transparency and how it handles that, that strikes me as the problem because that makes it dubious about what it presents as fact and how we can check whether what it's presenting as fact is actually fact or not. But that's a very different sort of issue. And, and, you know, it's kind of the same issue as you have a search engines to a certain extent, right? If you were to have a search engine that didn't give you information about the page it's pulling information from. So I don't know. I'm I just what I'm not struck by why both I concern over it or why it's so revolutionary, although I do think it is revolutionary in a kind of just a more stated, uh, reserved manner. Quinto, what's, what was your kind of reaction to all this?
2: Yeah, I mean I'll start off by saying I also have actually not been super impressed by it just from the point of view as someone who writes for a living. I find that the writing it produces is not good. It's not interesting. It's kind of paint by numbers, which is exactly what you would expect from this kind of model. I haven't I certainly would not use it to to write. And I, I find it hard to imagine how that would work frankly and and that you know the writing samples that i've seen that people are falling over themselves in astonishment over really seem like you know c plus at absolute best even assuming that all of the information in it is true which of course it it isn't so on that portion i'll just say i'm a bit puzzled honestly i feel like i'm missing something that said you know C plus level pros can still do a great deal of harm. And I, I sort of agree with Ben and with Alan that, you know, at this point, like it's 2023 when, when the model was released, it was 2022. It is pretty astonishing that open AI went through with this and released it to the public with you know with some built-in safeguards and moderation but not with you know as much as i would want um given everything that has happened in the last five or six years about what we've seen about what happens when you put tech products out into the world and and don't red team them enough and so i i kind of agree and disagree with everyone a little bit i guess
3: Can I ask you a question, though? Why is it fundamentally a problem this thing writes something horrible and racist and awful, if we ask it to? It'd be a real problem if it was returning that as something that was unprovoked, right? But why is that a problem for a problem? It'd be a problem if it was was automatically replicating that out to the world. But I guess I don't fundamentally see why this is like a major detractor for this technology. There's good reason, like certainly we've pointed problems like, from a PR perspective, this company needs to address this for their PR reasons because they don't want it to do this. And we've shown they haven't, haven't been as effective as, that, as they should be. But I'm not sure why it means that it's a technology that fundamentally, I think, is not ready for the public. Because it doesn't strike me that the harm from that is that severe, given that we're consciously trying to get it to do these things with a high degree of effort.
0: So the answer to that is partly that they have spent so much energy engineering that, that it shouldn't be possible and the fact that the the fact that they cannot control it if they had not you know invested the kind of energy in detoxifying it that they had and you could manipulate it into producing this sort of material that would be one thing but you know the idea that you could create an industrial production of disinformation of a highly objectionable nature, notwithstanding that they have specifically engineered against that, uh, is very troubling just in the sense that they're not able to control the product that they've created and they're not able to predict its likely outcome. So I did ask ChatGPT for a response while we were talking to this. I, I said to it, my colleagues, on the Rational Security Podcast are unimpressed by you. Do you have any response? And it says, as a language model developed by OpenAI, I don't have feelings or personal opinions. My main goal is to provide accurate and helpful information to the best of my abilities based on the data and information available to me. However, I am always working to improve and evolve, and I welcome constructive feedback to help me do so.
3: Extremely passive-aggressive in my view.
0: So wait, I pointed out that they they say your prose is pedestrian and unoriginal and you return inaccurate information. And it responds, I apologize if the information I provided was inaccurate or unsatisfactory. I am constantly learning and improving based on the feedback I receive. I strive to provide the most accurate and helpful information But as a machine learning model, I am not perfect and can sometimes make mistakes. I welcome any specific examples of inaccuracies so that I can improve my responses in the future.
4: This is ChatGPT promising to hashtag do the work.
0: Yes. Be best, ChatGPT. Be best.
3: Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
4: So there are many reasons why my state of Minnesota is the best state. And I just want to provide you with the latest reason, which is that the Minnesota Department of Transportation has announced the eight winners of its third annual Name a Snowplow contest. We have so many snowplows in the state of Minnesota, and we love them so much that we assign them special names. And this year's winner, and therefore a new snowplow will be named, Drum roll, please, you're a blizzard, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: a reference that's like 15 years out of date. Yep,
4: yep. Other, other, uh, other previous winners are Plowy McPlowface, Betty Whiteout, and my favorite, still I think the best one, The big Laplowski. (laughs) That's that one's legit good. That one's really good. So, uh, yeah, Minnesota never change. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: Uh, my object is something that by the time you listen to this may no longer exist, which is free access to the Twitter API. Uh, one of the latest casualties of Elon Musk's takeover. Uh, He announced that he would be charging, I think he said $100 a month for access to Twitter's API. Then he kind of backtracked, uh, but only for bots that are good. Uh, Who knows what that means? And yeah, I am in mourning. Um, On a serious note, this is a real loss for researchers who were able to use the API to conduct Serious scholarship, and now no longer will be able to. On a slightly less serious but still sad note, a lot of what I loved about Twitter was the bots that would, you know, pop up um, and the ways that you could cross post and interact with different things from around the internet. All of that is now going to be gone, unfortunately. And it also means that it's no longer possible to interface between Mastodon and Twitter. So, make of that what you will. Um, Overall, I think it's a real loss. It's, you know, maybe not as catastrophic as some of the earlier decisions that Musk made, but still really sad and kind of the end of an era. So, RIP, free Twitter API.
3: Well, for my object lesson this week, I am dipping into one of my many, many, many hobbies and interests, most of which I am quite a dilettante, and this one more than others, which is that I have a real thing for kind of architecture and design and spend a lot of time perusing pretty pictures of pretty buildings in my off moments when I want to do something idle on the internet. And while it's not particularly original, I am a big fan of Frank Lloyd Wright uh, in a variety of ways. I've been to visit many of his homes and think he always enjoy them. And frankly, Wright had a very interesting period late in his life in that he started move from designing like single homes and often furnishings and furniture within homes and interior and exterior design almost to doing massive grandiose structures, uh, both domestically and overseas in lots of crazy ways and crazy places, most of which never went built. They're almost entirely conceptual. But my wife pointed me towards an interesting story, I think in art, if I remember correctly, where there is an architect in Spain named David Romero, who has been taking these structures and actually building 3D models of them. Uh, and they are pretty stunning and insane. Some of the craziest buildings you've ever seen in your entire life. So I'm going to make that my object lesson, checking out these incredible models he's been doing. He's evidently been doing it for several years. I hadn't heard of it before, but I found a couple older articles as well, but some of the newer ones have some phenomenal images where he's taken rights pretty phenomenally interesting sketches in themselves and made them these 3d models the one he hasn't done though is my absolute favorite the thing that got me all ended all this in the first place and that is frankly Wright's plan for greater Baghdad because in 1957 the royal family of Baghdad just a year before it was wiped out in a coup slash revolution um, commissioned him to redesign their downtown and it has some of the most insane buildings you've ever seen in your life that try and evoke a very kind of like Western perspective on the Middle East, Orientalist sort of vision of what Baghdad is and should be in ways that are beautiful in many ways, problematic in other ways, but just a phenomenal thing to behold. I have a friend who has spent Uh, A section of their career in Iraq, as I did, uh, who's been trying to track down and buy originals of these sketches where you can find them at great expense. I'm not quite that ambitious uh, yet, although who knows, maybe uh, one day I will be. But they're pretty amazing to find. Um, And you can still find prints of them. They're hard to find, but in certain old books of Frank Lloyd Wright and a few places online. And hopefully one day we can get Dave Romero to do some of these 3D models of them. He hasn't done them yet, at least I've been able to find, but hopefully they're out there. So I will make my object lesson. Last one, a plea to Mr. Romero, please put the plan for Greater Baghdad on your list of to-dos for 3D modeling of some of these buildings moving forward. Ben, why don't you bring us home?
0: So in the spirit of Quinta's obituary object lesson, I want to uh, sing the praises in its death of what I call the little ass projector, a.k.a. the lap which was killed in action the other day, the first combat casualty in my war against the Russian uh, diplomatic presence in Washington. The LAP was a remarkable piece of technology for tech nerds. It is the x uh Horizon Pro. It is a truly remarkable projector. And I just want to tell you about its heroic death. I was setting it up, It was bitter cold, high winds, setting it up on Scott's tripod, I might add, to uh, project against the embassy. And I turned away for a moment and a gust of wind came and blew the entire tripod over and the lap shattered on the street. Emergency surgery to revive it was temporarily successful. We got it to boot up. Uh, that night, but it did expire over the evening. And so uh, we are uh, saying a mournful goodbye to the lap and uh, it will be replaced because the war goes on.
3: Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors and for information on lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening and be sure to also sign up to become a material supporter of lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.